You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. But with that, we just try to rehearse the previous week's memory verse, which for us was Deuteronomy 31.8. See if we can do it. The Lord is the one who will go before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. Do not be afraid or discouraged, right? So actually it was kind of fun. I got to share that with some friends a couple of weeks ago who were going through a difficult time and just kind of you get a little shaken up in your faith and you remember what has God said? Like he will go before us, he will not leave us, he will not abandon us. So, so what? Don't be afraid or discouraged. However, there are many times where we're kind of standing out like on a ledge going, God, I'm not really sure what you want me to do here. I'm not sure how you want me to go, how you want me to live, whether or not this is right or that is right. And so we're a little freaked out. If you're like me, I'm a little afraid of heights too. So if I feel like I'm on a, on a ledge by myself, really not a good thing. But it is so true for all of us who are walking with the Lord. If you are walking with him, you must always ask yourself really moment by moment. And I mean this kind of from our perspective, but, uh, but can God be trusted? Here, we know the answer is yes, right? Like we absolutely go, yeah, of course God can be trusted. Just don't put me in a situation where I have to trust. But yeah, of course. So we go, yeah, can God be trusted? We know it's true, but, but I think moment to moment, we're in and out of our confidence and really, can we trust God? Are the things that he's said to be true, true? And can we actually, can that change how we might even do our job on Monday? And can that change how we spend Tuesday afternoon? And can that change maybe even the way we spend our morning on Wednesday? Can that change the way we pray on Thursday? All of those things should be a reflection of our confidence in God and how he would have his people live. But really, I think so often we get caught up in just things that we see in the world and we can't really measure up or we can't shake the idea of what we see and experience and what we know God has said. Like these are two different things. And so, you know, just like uh, the two roads diverging in a narrow wood or whatever it might be, like you're looking at one path, you're looking at another path and you're trying to go, ah, I don't really know, right? And there's always somebody in the room who's gonna be like, no, there's like a third and a fourth and a fifth, right? I get it, uh, you know, like, like, but the, the nuance of deciding, but we're kind of standing there going, I'm not really sure, God, what you would have me do, but it does often feel for you and for me like there is this, we know there's kind of a way of the world, right? <clears throat> Jesus would call this like the way of destruction, that is a wide way to walk. And there's a way with him, which is a narrow way to walk, the way of faith, a different way to operate in this world. And for us, really, there are always competing thoughts. Even, even from those who live in the faith family, there's always competing thoughts because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that has yet to be fully redeemed by the Lord. We're waiting for him to return. We're waiting for him to right every wrong. So in this kind of in-between, we, we do find ourselves often getting kind of caught up between, okay, well, do I do things the way the world does? Do I love things the way the world loves? And of course, like, no, 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 no. But, but still, it's almost gravitational in the way that it tries to pull us and have us think and have us believe and have us behave. And then there's, right, really the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, which is about self-denial, about following him, about having confidence in him. And our walks, right, our walks with Jesus really are 
how will we do that day in and day out? That's why for us, you know, disciple making is so important where we walk with other brothers and sisters in their faith journey to help them think through the scriptures, to help us think about it because no one can really do this alone. I know my images are all people alone, but I was trying to like search for images of like corporate decision, tough roads. Like it just doesn't work. So it's always a single person, but it's all of us. We need to help one another make decisions, think about what really honors the Lord and what doesn't. How do we walk with him? How don't we walk with him? Like what what, what is obedient, what is disobedient? That's really what we'll see today. So in our reading, we actually had reading in Numbers this past week, finished Leviticus and into Numbers, and I wanted to read uh, or have for us going through two chapters in Numbers. Now this is a lot of text, so I'm gonna summarize it for us, and then we're gonna kinda dive into uh, dive into how we'll discuss it, but Numbers 13 and 14 is a significant story in the history of Israel. Often by this time in our Bible reading plans, we, we've, we've tapped out because we've had to get through Leviticus. And so we're like, yeah, never wake me up in Joshua, right? Like, so we just kind of hit pause or snooze until we get into Joshua. So Numbers 13 and 14 isn't often a place where we get but we all understand the story. We all heard maybe references to the wilderness wanderings. That Israel's just kind of marching around in the wilderness for 40 years in this circuitous route. Right? That's the, if, if you learn any word today, circuitous should be your word. Right? They're just kind of going around like this. That's all it means. And they're try, like, they just don't ever make it to the promised land. They're like, you know, not far. And so they're just kind of, God's marching them around. Well, what gets them into that 40 years of wandering is an important part of Israel's history, Numbers 13, Numbers 14. So that's where we'll be this morning. And that wandering where a whole generation dies out before the next generation takes the land, which is what we'll kind of, they'll be prepped for in Deuteronomy, and which they'll start doing in Joshua. Uh, so what we have right now is this whole generation that God brought out of Egypt is unable to enter the land because of their disobedience in Numbers 13 and 14. So we have to remember, like up to this point, let's just go up to Numbers 12, and really up to the first part of Numbers 13, the expectation is those God brought out of Egypt are going to get into the land. It's not as if like God began with, hey, you're out, right? This generation that's saved out of Egypt, you're done. It's actually played out in Numbers 13 and 14 why they don't enter into the land. So it's, again, an important part for us to kind of grab. So let me just, just, if you could just hear it, let me just kind of briefly run through what goes on here. God tells Moses to grab spies, spies, people who are going to go into the land and see it. Right before he's about to give it to him, just have, send 12 into the land so that uh, you can see it. And so they send 12, one from each tribe. They all go into the land. They're there for 40 days. They go up to the north, they go down to the south, and they come back. And when they come back, there are 10 of them who say, ain't no way we're gonna go into that land. Like, it's a nice land, look at these gigantic grapes we found, like, like, but, but we're not gonna go. There are too many people, they are too big, we cannot overtake them, not gonna happen. Then Caleb speaks up and he's like, ah, I think we could do it. Essentially, that's, that's Caleb's role in the passage. I think we could do it. The 10, right, there's, an 11, there's a 12 that we haven't heard from yet, but the 10 go, no, really not going to happen. So they run off and they go tell the rest of the nation, just so you know, big people, really scary, good land, but not for us. So the nation's, they're freaking out. 
And they're like, why did you bring us here? Which happens a lot, hasn't it, so far in our reading. Like, why are we, in, why are we here? Why did you save us from Egypt? We don't want it. In fact, let's elect a new leader and let's have this guy take us back to Egypt. Sounds smart. So, of course, now we hear four people. There's Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua. There's four people who go to the nation like, hey, bad call. That's a bad thing to do. Really, like, like this is, we, can, we can go into the land. We really can. God's good. And they're like, no, we can't. So who gets mad all the time with Israel? God. So God and Moses have a chat. God goes, Moses, I'm done. I'm done with this generation. I'm done with these people. I just don't, I don't want to have to do this anymore. Sounds kind of like a parent. I'm just sick of it. Moses has this great way. He talks about, about the Lord. He goes, God, if Egypt hears, and this is what I love, is like in God's sovereignty, he's, he's still right there with us in the moment, right? And, 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 and Moses goes, if Egypt hears about this, if they hear that you forsook us, that you abandoned us, well, what are they going to do? Right? They're going to they're laugh at us. We're going to become a mockery. Like, they're going to see us here in the desert and essentially, like, keep your promises. And so he reminds God, hey, you said this, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, like, this is our land. So God goes, okay, I'm not going to wipe them out. But the discipline will be that they will not enter the land. Only Caleb and Joshua can enter the land. So that's where we get the punishment. Well, the nation hears of this, and this is at the end of chapter 14. The nation hears of this, and then what do they do? They freak out, and they're like, no, we were just kidding. Like, we didn't, we didn't really mean it. Like, we, you know, we can do it. And so what do they do? Well, they mount up, and they're trying to go take the land on their own. And everyone's like, God's not with you. Not going to work. Ark's not going before you. Bad idea. And they're like, no, we can really do it because God said, so we're going to go do it. And so they go, and they get, they get just destroyed. And so you have, right, from start to finish, between 13 and 14, this just decline in the trajectory that that generation is headed, right? Go into the land that I'm going to show you. And they're like, we can't take it. The punishment is because of their lack of obedience or lack of faith, you're not going to go into the land. Then they try to circumvent that and go, no, 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 really, we can't. Right? It's like the kid who's like, I'm so sorry I got caught. Let me try and make it right. And you're like, it's too late. Right? Like the discipline has been spoken. You don't even really mean it. You're just, now you're just mad that you got caught. And so we're going to go, we're going to go try and destroy them. And then they get destroyed. In Numbers 13 and 14, we see obedience and disobedience play out. And so what I thought we could do this morning as we just engage that, that passage, that idea is really just look at those two ways, because we always are kind of operating with ways of the world, ways of the Lord. So I wanna look at those two ways and go, what do we see in Numbers 13 and 14 about disobedience and the consequences of disobedience? And what do we see about obedience and the blessings of obedience? Because that's gonna be a pretty consistent theme in the life of Israel. It's a pretty consistent theme in the life of the disciple. So I'm just gonna start with the way of disobedience. Just from this passage, of course, there's other ways you can be disobedient. 
and just give a few thoughts as we go to this passage and go, okay, so what is the way of disobedience, the way of fear that we see the Israelites living in, specifically born from those 10 spies of the 12? And I just wanna give a, a brief definition of what we're seeing and saying here, but disobedience is this, it's hard-heartedness in both how we speak and act, talk and act, toward who God is and what God says. That they don't believe it, that, they, that it doesn't penetrate their hearts. So they, they don't believe in who God is, they don't believe in what he has said, and since Genesis, he said, I'm gonna give you the land, 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 I'm gonna give you the land. And so let's just look at those first two verses, Numbers 13, one and two. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. There's no might in there. It's just a continuation of the promises that started in Genesis 12, one through three, like which I'm going to give to them. Each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So God says, go spy out the land which I am giving to them. They're not spying it out to see if they could take it. They're not spying out to see if they should take it. They're not spying out to see if it looks good or looks bad. They're just, just go look at it. That's what they're saying. Because God has already declared, it's your land. I'm gonna give it to you. So there really isn't even a qualification here. Go into the land which I'm gonna give to you. So then from three to really 16, he just names who goes. I would not wanna be in that list, unless I were Caleb or Joshua, but like 10 guys get named as the ones who never really think that it's a good idea. So they go into the land, they spy it out, and I want you to just clue in on verse 27 as they come back, okay? In verse 27, <clears throat> they come back and they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. They were gone 40 days. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. So here are, here's the gigantic grapes you get to see. However, important word there. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there who were like giants in the land. So hey, we saw the land, it looked good, but really, not good. The people are large, and the cities are big, and they're fortified, well what are they doing, right? They're looking, and they're making a decision based upon what they see, not based upon who God is. They look and they see the city, they go, we can't take the city, let's go ahead and just tell everybody. Again, whether or not they could take it was not up for discussion. God had already said, the land is yours. Just go into it, look at it, come on back. God gets annoyed, of course, and after, uh, as God and God and Moses' interchange, if you look at chapter 14, verse 11, he kind of helps you realize how frustrated he is. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I have done among them? Right, hard-heartedness in how we speak and how we act toward God, what he said, and who he is. And the Lord's looking at this going, how long are they gonna do this? Besides all of the things that I've done and all of the ways that I have demonstrated myself as faithful and true and good and holy and righteous and caring and loving in everything that I have done for them, how long will they still not believe me? How many times does it take? God defined the disobedience there. 
And so as we do this, I'm just going to kind of bring just simple uh, little application points that uh, we have a hard time grabbing onto. I do as well. Uh, but if you just look at that, first and foremost, like listen to what God says and not what man says. I mean, ultimately, that's like the Christian life. What does God say? What do I do? How do I follow after him? What is obedient there? How do we understand what we're reading and how are we living it out? But we don't do that, do we? The 10 spies look at the land, they go, ain't no way, not gonna take it, can't do it. Listen to what God says, not what man says. And I think in keeping with that, we've talked about this in our own community group, that, that we should create habits and reminders of God's faithfulness. Um, I'm not saying you must do this, but I think it's helpful. We were talking in our group about how uh, many of our kids have had ailments, we've had issues, and we've you know, spent uh, time in the hospital. It's part of our story with our family, and we've just kind of gone through it, surgeries and confusion and concern, and you know, signing off on a day old for the anesthesiologist, right? To be like, yeah, sure, you know, you can take this. That was like one of the hardest moments of my life was signing, you know, consent on behalf of a one-day-old. And so we just talked about how how helpful it would be if we just looked back and and reminded ourselves not just of cool memories but reminded ourselves of God's faithfulness throughout years. Some people do this really well. I do not. Uh, we, we are not uh, really in the business of memory making in order to encourage faithfulness. I think we like memory making, but memory making to encourage faithfulness to the Lord uh, and reminding ourselves of his character is not often something that we want to do. We'll do the reverse. In fact, next week you'll see how Israel tries to remember things uh, that are actually relics of their disobedience, not their obedience. It's a pretty interesting thing. Uh, so you'll see that in Numbers 21. Um, and there's just this little statement made later in the history of Israel where you're like, oh, huh, never, didn't even know that was real. Uh, but basically they held on to something they should have never held on to. But we often don't remind ourselves of God's faithfulness. Just to sit back and go, look at what God has done. Reminding ourselves, both in the life of maybe Genesis and in the life of your community group and in the life of your own family, like, what has God done? <clears throat> because as we forget those things, what starts to happen, right? We turn inward and we get worried about ourselves. And then, like the nation of Israel, they're like, it was way better back in Egypt. And you're like, no, it's not. It never was. It never was. But that's often where we go. So, disobedience being hard-heartedness, this is another one. Disobedience spreads like cancer. It just affects everyone. Okay, so remember, 12 are sent out to believe the land can be taken. We're gonna get to those in the obedience section. 10 believe they cannot. <clears throat> the 10 go to the nation. And they're talking <clears throat> about what they see. So back in chapter 13, now 13 is the story of the report. 14 is the story of their interaction with the nation, just so you know. So 13, the report of the land. 14 is how they deal with the Lord there. So after Caleb speaks up in verse 30 and says, we can take it, the men who, the other 10, stand up and they say this, no, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land 
through which we have gone to spy is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. So now it's not just the 10, right? Now the 10 go to the nation and they say, hey, listen, just let's go ahead and get ahead of it. You can't take this land. We can't take this land. It's not gonna happen. I mean, we've been here in the wilderness. All we really have are the, 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 like the clothes on our backs. We don't really have a lot. These people have lived there. They're fortified. We are not. It's just a bunch of us being like, let's take the land, right? Like we can't do it. And so the 10 go to the nation and they say, we can't take it. Now, if you start in chapter 14, what you see is the nation's response. All the congregation raised a loud cry and people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Does that sound familiar? The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. I mean, now you're bringing wives and children into it. You're making it worse, right? Oh, but our wives and our children, like they, you know, they're gonna become prey for this land. Why don't we just go back? Now, I just, just pretend for a second, right? Let's just entertain, that. what if we just went back? Do you think they're gonna be received with open arms in Egypt? Like if we just play that thing out, go ahead, go back to Egypt, right? You just, a whole bunch of them just drowned to death. So you're gonna head on back, you know, a year or two later and be like, oh, hey, can we stay? Not gonna go very well. Not gonna go very well. You wiped out our cattle, you wiped out our land, you wipe out our people, but yeah, go ahead. You can just move into that house right there. My uncle used to live in it until he drowned. They're not gonna go. And yet in their head, what do we do? We do the same kind of thing where we kind of idolize and worship something that was never really good in the first place. Because what's coming or what we see, we have a hard time realizing is better. So the whole nation believes the 10. The whole nation believes the 10. And the disobedience is multiplied. And this is something I feel like we in our generation, maybe even in our culture really don't, don't get, is that what I do and what I believe about God affects you. How I speak about God affects you. How I don't speak about God affects you. And the same for you to me. And so when 10 people go to a nation and they go, ooh, this looks bad, you're multiplying your lack of confidence in God in them. Now at the same time, we're all accountable for what we see the Lord saying, speaking, and doing. And so we are accountable to that, but we would be fools to think that how we speak about the Lord and how we talk about what we read and how we talk about how we live and the reports that we give back, that, that, that it wouldn't affect other people. And so I'd say this, you know, do you speak about God, we could say, but do you speak with faith or fear? Because if you speak with fear or disobedience, then often your applications are gonna be like, we can't do it, not gonna happen. 
Life isn't going to work this way. It just won't. I, you haven't seen it. You don't know. You don't know what it's like. And our prayers and our belief and our life and our encouragement, they all get wrapped up in this kind of package of faithlessness, and it impacts everybody around us who gets to hear us say those things. So 10 people go to the nation. The nation goes, yeah, that's, we don't even want to go there. We don't even want to go there. And so just like people who are trying to decide, like, uh, like what, what is this? Is it this way or is it that way? Is it right or is it left? Is it up or is it down? The way that we speak and we encourage one another, our brothers and sisters in the faith, affects them. I have made few good decisions alone. I have made many bad decisions alone. Many. And so we need to speak to and with one another. But we need to speak to and with one another based on God's character and in keeping with it. Not, not over here in some other world where we don't even think that he can do the things he said he would do. Because when we speak over here, what are we doing? But we're, we're, we're kind of pointing people's eyes and hearts towards what they can see. And that's not the realm of faith, is it? That faith looks towards what is unseen. That it's rooted in what God has said and what God is doing, not what we think is best. That's why I love the prayer, and it's one of my regular prayers, a statement made to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Because I never want to be the one who is so arrogant to be like, got this Jesus thing licked, right? Like, I know what to say, I know what to do. There's always some level of disbelief rumbling around inside of me, and I need other people to kind of call that out and lift my eyes. In fact, one of the greatest preaching pieces of advice I ever got had nothing to do with how you handle the text. It's in how you then speak to people about the text. And, and, and what uh, it was um, from Sherry, and what she said was, you have to lift people's eyes up to the Lord and show them that he's good and show them that he can be trusted and don't have them just thinking about their business all the time but show them God's character lift their eyes that little image of lifting their eyes it's changed how I think about what I do because it'd be really easy right so easy to get ourselves to focus on what's going on right in front of us that's what the 10 are doing here. And now it's multiplied through the nation. Now we would understand this, right? But we, have, we live disobediently and we impact others disobediently. And we should recognize what comes then at the next point, which is that disobedience has significant consequences. That should go without saying, but we often forget that part. If you don't obey the Lord, there are consequences. And there is discipline. Eternally, if you don't heed his voice and surrender and put your faith in Jesus, pretty significant eternal consequence. But even day in and day out, if you break covenant, if you, uh, if you do not live honorably with your spouse, if you uh, decide to try and cheat at work just a little bit, there are always consequences for those things. And you see that. And the consequence was for the Lord. And uh, we see the generation <clears throat> coming out of Egypt. They are now going to die in the wilderness. Chapter 14, starting in verse 21. But truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men 
who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put put me to the test ten times and have not obeyed me. None of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despised me shall see it. So because of their disobedience, the Lord goes, listen, he has pardon. Moses pleads, and in, his, in Moses' pleading with the Lord, the Lord goes, okay, I'm not going to wipe them out, but listen, they're not going to get into the land. He's spoken his judgment. He has said it. And there's two things. One I want us to consider is this. Just consider what might come through personal or corporate disobedience. That, that the Lord's discipline in our lives is okay. In fact, that discipline exists to correct. To correct. So often we're trying to avoid discipline. And so when the Lord disciplines the nation, not good, but it's loving. Of course you want to get into the land, and right? They have, you know, like they, I'm sure they're posting on Instagram how excited they're going to be to almost get into the land and all that kind of stuff. Like they have pictures of it from far away and all their friends are liking those photos. Like we're almost there. And then God goes, you're not getting in. Disobedience is disciplined. Not believing, misleading others Harming others, teaching falsely about the Lord, misrepresenting God as one of his leaders is one of the scariest things that I think about. But personal or corporate disobedience has consequences. One of the most humbling things that you or I could do when we are receiving consequences from our own disobedience is to just humbly receive it. Not try and get out of it, not try and fix it, which is what's about to happen, but just go, you're right, Lord, and to receive it. And, and I'll see people sometimes, and this is how I know, and I've said this before, this is how I know that the discipline that might be on somebody, be it corporate, be it church discipline, or be it just the discipline that you receive from being in sin, and even the conviction that might exist there, is that when people want to short circuit the fact that they're disciplined, then I know they really aren't being humble about it. And this is what I mean. Like, oh my gosh, I know I screwed up. Can we stop talking about it? Well, can, you, can, can, I, can I stop feeling bad about it? I'm like, well, it depends. Like, I don't want, you're not bad in relationship to God. God loves you. God cares for you. God sent his son for you. But there are consequences to your disobedience. There's consequences to your sin. There's discipline that comes because of that. And humbly receiving the discipline of the Lord and not arrogantly trying to buck against it often demonstrates the difference between do you really understand what God's doing and that his reproof is even for your good, that his discipline is even for for your good and your righteousness and your holiness, that you would be purified through it. Granted, the consequence for the nation is significant. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. But, I just remember this. God chose the nation. In chapter 12, he had the seed of a promise. We saw through Genesis how that nation gets into Egypt. We see how God brings them out of Egypt. God has done all of the work in the life of the nation as is. 
And yeah, he is frustrated. And this is like the parenting thing. Like, yeah, you're frustrating me. You're not not mine. You're still mine. But there are consequences for how you live. There's consequences for what you say. There's consequences for how you believe or disbelieve and how you operate. And that's what they have. But then we have, at the end of the chapter, we have how they act. I say it like this, disobedience avoids repentance. Look at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 39. Let's go 39 to 45. When Moses told these words, that was God's discipline to the people, they mourned greatly, rightfully so. And they rose up early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are, hey, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised for us. We've sinned, we know it, we get it, we're gonna go ahead and go. Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? What was the command of the Lord? Not gonna get in. You're not gonna get in. So like, well, let's go ahead and just try. Don't go up. The Lord is not among you, lest you will be struck down before your enemies. For there are Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you. You shall fall by the sword because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But, listen to this, but they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So what are they doing? Like somebody who gets caught. They're like, we want to make it right. Let's go ahead. No, we've sinned. We can do it. And they're trying to do it without humility, without repentance. They're just like, let's just do the things God said back in the day. And it's like, that ship has sailed. God has spoken. And let what he has spoken come to pass. Like, no, we're going to go ahead and do it anyways. So we're going to go on to the land. And Moses is like, bad idea. Nothing's going before you. Remember, God said, like, fire by day, cloud by, sorry, fire by night, cloud by day. Like, you're going to go when I go. And they say, let's just go now. Moses is like, I'm not going. Ark's not going. The Lord is not with you. And what do they do? Oh, no, that's okay. We'll go anyways. I just say this. Don't fix problems in your own power. Just surrender to God. Don't try and get out of it. Don't try and fix it. Don't try and weasel. Don't try and barter or bargain or anything else. Just go, God, what do you want? And if you need to say, forgive me, then you say, forgive me. If you need to say, search me, then you say, search me. If you need to apologize and ask forgiveness of other people that you have wronged, then apologize and ask forgiveness of other people that you have wronged. But don't try and fix on your own. And don't try to obey the Lord with your actions, but not obey the Lord with your heart, which is what Israel was trying to do there, right? God said, we're going to go into the land, so let's just go ahead and take it. But they were not listening to the discipline of the Lord. They had not heard in their hearts what God had said and they were trying to fix it externally because they're still operating by sight and not by faith. And so it's like when people say, oh man, man, my life's really been messed up, I need to get to church more. I'm like, that could be true, but you need to realize that just showing up in the building doesn't fix your heart. Right, like, like, like so getting here, great. But, but it's not as if you like walk in and then it's like, oh, great, now that you're here on Ella Boulevard, like all is well. 
And he has this kind of like, as you walk in, you don't see it, but like the pixie dust that kind of falls over you and everything's good. That's not what happens. And so though a conviction of sin might lead us to want to engage with the Lord, if we try to just engage with our actions and not with our heart, then we have missed it altogether. And they're trying to obey just from their actions and in their own power, and they fail miserably. Miserably. So if there's a way of disobedience, then there must be a way of obedience. And I want to just give a couple of statements here as we look, because we haven't talked about Caleb, Joshua, Moses, or Aaron. Moses doesn't get into the land, but not because of this. Moses doesn't get into the land because he also doesn't believe the Lord just a little later. But we have four guys right now who have a different perspective. So first, these are like no-brainers, but often that's what we need. Obedience believes God's trustworthy. Look at 1330. I love Caleb's statement. This has been with me all week. After the spies go, we can't do it, Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said this, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we, will, uh, we are well able to overcome it. That's all Caleb says. That's all he says. Done. Like, that's his line in this whole exchange. Hey, we could do it. <laughs> and I just think, like, faith does not need to defend itself. Listen to the guys who are talking a lot. The ten. No, there are giants in the land, and everything is fortified, and there's no way that we could do it. I mean, I, I know it looks like a good land, and we know that God has said these things, but really, we can't do it. Caleb's like, eh, I think we could do it. That's it. He gets one sentence. He speaks up a little later in chapter 14, but in regard to this exchange, one sentence, all he gives. No, we can do it. If you look at 14, five through eight, you see that again. Moses and Aaron, they fell on their faces before the assembly, they cried out. Joshua and Caleb were also there. And they said, verse seven, they said to all the congregation, the land which we pass through to spy it out is exceedingly good. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that uh, flows with milk and honey. We can do it. That's what they say. If the Lord is with us, then we can do it. It doesn't matter how many people. It doesn't matter how fortified the cities. It doesn't matter that all we have are clothes and manna, and they have houses and weapons. Like We can do this thing because God is God, and he's going before us. So obedience believes that God is trustworthy. Secondly, and this is important, obedience to the Lord seeks the good of others. Look in verse 17. Moses is interceding for Israel. And he says this, Now, Lord, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of his fathers and the children of the third and fourth generations, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And so the obedient position doesn't just focus in on like my world. <clears throat> and this is what we can do sometimes. I'm good. I don't know about you, but I'm good. But Moses, a righteous leader in the life of Israel, is going, God, will you forgive us for how we've wronged you? 
His prayer is not, I am so glad that I'm good. I feel really bad for the rest. Jesus talks about those prayers, right? The one's like, forgive me for her sinner. And the other one's like, so glad I'm not like him. Moses doesn't pray like that here. He doesn't go, I am so glad that I am not one of the 10. Thank you, Lord. But what is he doing? He's pleading with God on behalf of others. Because the disobedient aren't. They're not gonna plead with the Lord on their own behalf. So it takes those who know the Lord and who are with the Lord and walking with the Lord to pray and intercede and ask the Lord to intervene on behalf of others. The obedient position does that. And then you see at the end of the chapter, toward the end of the chapter, 1430, that God blesses faithful obedience. Listen to what he says. Even as he's speaking his judgment that they will not enter the land, He says this, except Caleb and Joshua, they'll make it. Two, two get to go into the land. Why? Because they said, we can do it. Faith is the minority position in life. It is not the majority position. The majority position lives by sight. The minority position lives by faith. Of course you feel weird in this world. Or you should. You shouldn't feel at home here. This isn't your home. The more at home and comfortable you feel here, the more concerned you should be. I have this conversation with my kids sometimes. I'm like, hey guys, we're weird. We're a weird family, I'm sorry. We make weird decisions, we do weird things. I make up Bible songs every week for you and like all your friends are probably laughing. I get it, we're weird. That's all right. I can't make them believe. I I can pray and beg of the Lord that they might believe. But walking with the Lord is never the popular position. Even in church life, it's often not the popular position, is it? Obedience to him and faithfulness to him. Like, no, we want comfort. We want to feel good. We want to like where we live and what we do and how we operate. And that's like, the words that we have are like foreigners, strangers, sojourners, aliens. Those are the words that we have that try to qualify who we are. And so we should understand that our obedience is odd because we have a totally different way we operate in this world. And I want to end here. For those who are concerned about faithful obedience and how you do that, I would say it is possible only because of the obedience of Jesus. You go, man, that's a, that's a tall order. Believe, 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 believe. You are more often like the ten and the nation than you are like the two. And the only reason you can operate like the two is because of what Jesus has done. Look at Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, this is Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross that it is the perfectly obedient life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that enables us to live 
with open hearts and open lives to the Lord. Because it's not any one specific moment that God is looking at and going like, you know, in a gladiator, thumbs up or thumbs down, right? In, out, good, bad. He sees Jesus, and because Jesus was obedient to the point of death, we can walk with him and be obedient because even when we misstep, the Lord is with us. Even when we falter, he sees Jesus. Even when we struggle, he sees Jesus. But Jesus' obedience and Jesus going, if you love me, you'll obey my commands, these statements that Jesus makes should motivate us to this. From a posture of faith, obey God. Knowing who he is and what he's done and how he's saved and how he's moved to go, Lord, how could I follow you better? How could I follow you more closely? How could I delight myself in you more because of what you've done? So from faith, we obey. And how we live, how we speak, and how we trust I long for us as a church to, I know we will fail at this, but in every decision, choose faith. But even when we don't choose faith, I have confidence because Jesus did. (laughs) And so I'm like, well, at least Jesus was there (laughs) because we're not gonna get it right. We could try our best, we still won't get it right, but the Lord is there and he covers us. So let me pray that that would become more and more true for us as a people. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for the life that we have. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. Thank you for the obedience of Jesus that then empowers and enables because of the life we have and share with him, empowers our own obedience. Father, help us in moments of weakness to see the position of faith and know, Lord, that it is minority in its approach and it is alien and it is odd. But it is where you operate with us and we praise you for that. Grow our hearts and our obedience to trust you, Lord. To speak and act as though who know that you are alive and you are to be trusted. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.